0: From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. COVID-19 hospitalizations in New York continue to plateau and aren't declining at the rate public health officials had hoped. Our daily coronavirus updates ahead will ask our physician why the region most affected isn't seeing much of a curve. Also, the proper way to handle facial coverings and surgical masks. The risk of COVID-19 exposure can actually increase if a mask is exposed to the virus and the wearer doesn't take it off correctly. And the nation's largest investment fund, the California Public Employee Retirement System, has endured the recent stock market hit like everyone else. We'll find out how CalPERS is doing. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us wherever you are in Southern California. Our best wishes go out to Dodger broadcaster Vin Scully and his family. Word that he suffered a fall at his home. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, he's hospitalized, and according to the team, resting comfortably. The extent of his injuries has not been disclosed. In a statement released by the Dodgers, Scully said, I won't be doing any more hit 1st sliding. I never liked it. Uh, for 67 season, the Dodger broadcaster, and we wish him and his family members, the whole Dodger organization, all the best for a swift and thorough recovery for the 92-year-old Vin Scully, a man whose uh, life's work has meant so much to us uh, for all of these years. We continue, as we have every day on AirTalk, with an update on COVID-19, as well as the public health practices to make sure that the spread of COVID 19 is contained. Joining us today is Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Dr. Blumberg, welcome back. So good to have you with us.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you, Larry.
0: So let's talk first about what we are seeing in New York, where it appears their plateau on hospital admissions has continued. But we haven't started to see a significant decline as one might expect on a curve like that. what What do you make of what we're seeing there?
1: Well, I think it's um, great progress that there's no further increase in the number of cases that are occurring. They we're increasing at a basically a logarithmic rate an extreme rate, and so a plateau is the first thing that you'd expect before we start seeing a decline. And they've had so much pressure on the healthcare systems, on the hospitals. So this this means that um, we can look forward to them turning the corner.
0: We're also beginning to to get a clearer picture of those who are falling the most seriously ill and dying as a result of COVID nineteen. Uh, in the numbers we're looking at now, close to a quarter of the fatalities. Are nursing home residents. Um, we know, of course, that age and underlying conditions play a huge role here. Is that number what you might have expected or surprising to you?
1: Well, it is surprising, but when you think of the nursing home residents, they've got um, several reasons to have increased risk to have severe disease. First of all, they're older, and we know that people who are older are more at risk for severe disease. And then the older that you are, the more comorbidities that you have, other illnesses such as hypertension, heart disease, kidney disease. And we know that those who have those chronic illnesses are also at higher risk. And then one additional factor is that in a nursing home, people are in a, in a relatively crowded, closed living quarters. And so they're probably going to be exposed to a higher concentration, a higher dose of the virus. And these secondary cases, secondary household cases, with most infectious diseases, they're going to be more severe because of that.
0: Uh, the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association just um, published an article looking at health records from 5,700, 5,700 patients hospitalized within the Northwell Health System. That system had the most patients in the country uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, this is in the New York City area. And it showed that 94% of those 5,700 patients had Had more than one uh, disease. Uh, So it was not just COVID 19, but they either suffered from high blood pressure, diabetes, or obesity. And then you factor in the median age of the patients 63 years old, more than half suffered from hypertension. Um, It would seem to be that for those who do not have an underlying health condition and are younger, the risk is quite small, at least according to these these figures. Your, your thoughts on it?
1: Well, yeah, relatively small. But um, remember that 88% had more than one underlying health condition. Um, that means that 6% had, um, uh, of the remaining 6%, had just one health, underlying health condition and 6% had none. And yet, Six percent—that's still a lot. So out of these um, uh, almost 5,700 um, patients, that's still over 300 patients that um, ended up in the in uh, over 300 patients that ended up um, hospitalized with um, severe disease. So it's still very concerning.
0: No, I, I understand it's concerning. I guess trying to peg this towards what we would see from a seasonal flu, once you factor out the people at the highest risk. So is this not necessarily, again, for younger people who don't have an underlying health condition, is this more risk to them than they would necessarily see from an annual flu?
1: Yeah, it's really difficult to um compare the two because we're there's still so much we don't know about this infection um with covid-19 we still don't know how many patients are infected and are completely asymptomatic or have mild disease because we're just now being able to test those people we had such a se- severe shortage of testing availability before, we just don't know the answers to those questions.
0: And with the uh, antibody testing that we've seen in Santa Clara County, Los Angeles County, now that New York has undertaken, it shows significantly higher rate of exposure to COVID-19, but less lethality. And I know there's a lot of debate about... um, the accuracy of those antibody tests and what they really tell us about the vulnerability of those patients moving forward. But does that say to you that perhaps um, we're closer to herd immunity than we had thought?
1: well we 're a little bit closer to herd immunity, and you know with these tests that you do have to take them with a grain of salt because they they may not be that accurate on an individual level, but when they 're aggregated and you test entire populations they we do think that they 're pretty accurate and what 's remarkable is both the Santa Clara and the l a county. Um, data that came out are very similar, showing about 4% of the population infected. And of course we haven't tested that much of the population, so that's gross underreporting in terms of the swab tests, um, but we know that since we had severe um, limited, limitations of testing availability um, that we knew that there were many more mild infections. But 4% doesn't get us very close to herd immunity. You'd probably have to get up to 60 or 80% of the population to be immune to get up there. So we still have a long way to go.
0: So does does any of this inform for you when some non-essential businesses can start to gradually reopen? Or do you feel like there's just a dearth of information to intelligently make that call?
1: I think the main information, the most important information we have is the reporting of the number of cases and the hospitalized cases. The reasons for the drastic public health measures that have been taken into place is to make sure that when people do get an infection, the hospital capacity is available to take care of them. Um, And we need to make sure that hospitals aren't overwhelmed like they were in New York. We need, need need to make sure we've got that um, hospital availability, the ICU, and the ventilator avail- availability to take care of the severe patients. So once we've seen the flattening of the curve that we've seen in California, I think now's the time to think about loosening up the restrictions, but of course not loosening them up to the way we were before. We're not we're not going back to life um, uh, the way before this happened um, for quite some time.
0: Next hour, we're going to be talking about Georgia and other states that are relaxing their stay-at-home orders to see you know, what what potentially could be learned for California. Are you concerned that gyms are one of the businesses that's allowed to reopen there?
1: Well, here's what I would think of. I would think that the the, the riskiest places to um, open up would be those that have a large number of people that have more social interaction. So, the probably the worst case scenario would be like a large entertainment um, event, like a sporting event or a concert. You don't want to have gatherings of ten thousand or hundred thousand people in one spot. That would be the worst. And then the other end of the spectrum is something like if people went to um, the, their barber or hair salon and got their hair cut, and it was like a one-on-one interaction um, with the person who's doing their hair. Um, maybe they're both wearing, maybe they're they're wearing masks if feasible, um, and they're socially distanced from others in the salon. You know, that that would be a much lower risk um, uh, interaction. So those are the kind of things that I would think of in terms of what things should be allowed at first, and then careful monitoring to make sure that when we open things up, that we don't get a a sharp rebound in the number of cases.
0: In Georgia, I think uh, right after the weekend, they're going to be reopening movie theaters, but employing social distancing so you don't have people sitting right next to each other. Um, Is that something you you think uh, could potentially be a good test to see if if that's viable
1: you know i just think that that's a low priority right now so that that wouldn't be one of the first things that i would open up
0: I guess uh, here in Southern California with the entertainment industry, such a big deal. You know, movie opening, uh, opening of theaters, uh, of course, has huge economic consequences. We're talking with Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor in chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. And we welcome your calls every day. We have a medical expert with us to talk about COVID-19, about the public health measures to try and keep COVID 19 from spreading into vulnerable populations. 866 893 KPECC, 866 893 5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. I want to talk uh, about masks, Dr. Blumberg, because we get so many listener questions about face coverings or masks. And one of the things that we've heard is that they can actually increase the danger. If they're not handled properly, would you mind talking with us about the proper way to to take on and take off a mask?
1: Yeah. So so it's really interesting because we really had a rush to um, put on uh, to have masks in public. And that really is a concern that um, if you're not wearing a mask correctly, that could actually increase the risk of infection. The the masks can get contaminated on the outside, and if you start touching the outside and then touching your face, you could end up um, infecting yourself. And one of the other concerns with masking is that people will be so comfortable wearing the mask that then they won't do the other things that we know are effective, such as social distancing um, and hand washing. masks are not as effective as social distancing, so that really should be our first um, priority.
0: 866-893-KPECC or the Airtalk page, kpecc.org. So you don't want to be touching the front of the mask. Uh, If you're wearing a surgical mask, for example, you want to just take the ear straps, make sure you put those over the ears, you take it off the same way. Uh, And then similar, I assume, if you're using a scarf, some other thing, again, you don't want to touch the outside,
1: Right, exactly, and then you want to take what's on the outside, and that's what you're going to put face down on a surface if you're going to rewear it later because you don't want the inside that's contacting your nose. You don't want that contaminated.
0: All right. 866-893-KPECC. You can also tweet at Airtalk. You can also message us with a question on the Airtalk Facebook page. New York Times reporting today that physicians have seen many parents stay away, you know, pediatricians particularly, um, when their kids need to get vaccinations over concerns about exposing them to COVID-19 as a pediatric infectious disease specialist yourself. Have you seen that drop, and are you concerned?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that drop. We've seen um, pediatricians um, and family practitioners that the the patients, the parents just aren't bringing their kids in and some of them are afraid to go to the doctor's offices because they're concerned there might be increased risk for exposure. Now, most if not all doctor's offices are going to have uh, mitigation plans in place to decrease risk. And these immunizations are critical for children. The last thing we want is for there to be a measles outbreak uh, amidst this COVID-19 crisis, and for young children, for example, they need their immunizations against whooping cough. The youngest children, those less than six months of age, have increased risk of dying from whooping cough, and so we want to make sure that we get them protected and don't delay the immunizations.
0: Uh, I presume that offices uh, are generally using good practices to to try and uh, make sure that kids and their parents aren't exposed?
1: Right. So many what many offices are doing is, for example, they'll see healthy patients in the morning and have the sick patients in the afternoon so that the healthy patients um, have decreased risk of exposure. They're making sure that in the waiting rooms they have adequate space for, um, for social distancing. Those are the kind of things that are being done by individual practices.
0: Here in California, Governor Gavin Newsom announcing yesterday that it's okay for hospitals to move forward with non-emergency surgeries. These are scheduled surgeries that were put off because of, of concerns about capacity from COVID-19 patients. Uh, are you seeing at the UC Davis Medical Centers those types of surgeries resume?
1: Yeah, I think all hospitals are are trying to figure out how they can resume these types of surgeries. And I just want to remind people that although they're they're quote unquote elective surgeries, nobody wants to do surgery. Nobody wants to have surgery done on them. These surgeries are, are really important. So for example, if somebody has a lot of back pain and they need surgery Postponing that surgery means they continue to have back pain, and so these underlying issues still need to be addressed, and they are important.
0: All right. Um, Ethan in Monrovia wondering, when will there be enough tests that anyone who wants to take a test, whether symptomatic or not, is able to do it. Let me just uh, throw in the postscript that uh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti announced that for anyone who is an ins- essential employee that they will now be able to be tested uh, even if they don't have symptoms. So when do you think that will be further broadened?
1: You know, I really don't know when that's going to occur. Um, The testing capacity for the current tests is gradually being increased, and then there's new tests being developed all the time that are being made available. So uh, many people may have heard of the point-of-care test, the rapid test that you can get results within 15 minutes. That's an advance, um, although that's not quite as accurate as the tests that take longer that are mostly hospital or large commercial laboratory-based tests.
0: All right. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital. He's professor at UC Davis, the School of Medicine, and chief of pediatric infectious diseases. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Much more to come in one minute. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Just a reminder, Film Week comes your way tomorrow, 11 o'clock on 89.3. A chance to find out what's worth your while to watch at home during this time when movie theaters are closed. We'll hear what our critics have to say. And we'll also interview the director of a new Netflix documentary, Circus of Books, about the gay bookstore that her parents operated, well, uh, two of them, West Hollywood and in Silver Lake, huge parts of the communities. Uh, and operating, of course, during the time of AIDS when so many of their customers and employees uh, were lost during that period. Uh, poignant, uh, funny, and fascinating documentary. We'll talk with the director of it, Circus of Books. That comes up on Film Week tomorrow here on 89.3 KPCC. Right now, we're talking with UC Davis Children's Hospital Professor and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, Dr. D. Dean Blumberg. We have more listener questions. Jim in Hollywood said, I read that sunshine acts as a disinfectant. Would it be possible to leave your mask in the sun for disinfection?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the sunshine does um, actually just air being exposed to air uh, acts as a, a, a as it will kill the virus. It doesn't survive that long on surfaces. So one um, strategy that even healthcare providers have used with the N95 masks, the ones that um, the healthcare workers need to protect themselves, um, is to rotate them. Um, and so some people are just doing one one a day um and having like five of them so they they could um let them rest. The virus probably lasts um, maybe up to 24 hours on a surface, such as a mask. That would be on the long side, probably much less than that. So just having it um, out and exposed to air for that amount of time um, makes it makes it uh, non-infectious.
0: Cynthia in Glendale says, my daughter's a graduating high school senior. I was wondering if it's okay if she and one or two friends get together. I'd love if it was just a mini prom because everything for her has been canceled in her senior year. Dr. Blumberg?
1: Don't do it. I would recommend not doing that. You have to realize that um, if you start getting just even one or two people from different households together, and they're together with one or two people from other households, you know you're being exposed to everybody that they've been exposed to, and so that's not how the social distancing works. We really need to maintain. The social distancing um, to keep the transmission rate low in California to uh, make sure that the curve remains flat and that we don't have an explosive outbreak. I
0: was hearing about a a college student, this is not my son, by the way, who is a college student, but hearing about one who uh, would get together with his friends. uh, They drive their cars to a large parking lot, park in a big circle, take their dinner, and sit on the hoods of the car and talk as they have their dinner, but, you know, across this distance in the parking lot. I thought that was a rather creative way of of, of staying connected. But uh, Dr. Blumberg, does that sound safe to you?
1: Well, they're maintaining a. They're, sounds like they're maintaining a distance of at least six feet from each other, and so that does sound safe.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually more than that. And I thought it was a pretty creative response to do it. Very cinematic as well. You can really, uh, you know, picture the scene. Eight six six eight nine three K P C C or the Air Talk page K P C C Andrew in La Crescenta uh, wonders um, if. When I'm walking around, he wants to know what the acceptable buffer is when out walking on the streets um, with someone. Is six feet sufficient?
1: Yeah, I would say six feet is generally sufficient. I mean, three feet is probably sufficient. And then the extra three feet gives them uh, an extra cushion. You know that none of this is magic. these numbers you know the virus doesn't just suddenly drop to the ground at 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 six feet, and so a little bit of virus um, can remain in the air um and it's all about a numbers game. it's all about decreasing risk and decreasing probability of getting infected
0: all right eight six six. 893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Not surprisingly, as the temperatures are warming up and we're going to have a heat wave going into this weekend, we're getting swimming pool questions. Does chlorine kill the virus? Um, If someone has been swimming in a pool, do you need to wait before someone else can go in? Uh, Is it sufficient to keep six feet distance if you're swimming in a pool with someone else? Dr. Blumberg?
1: Yeah, um, water is not known to transmit the virus, and pools that are adequately chlorinated and adequately taken care of, um, will, there won't be remaining um, infectious virus in the water. So it is safe as long as you maintain the, the social distancing recommendations. It's primarily a respiratory virus, and so your main risk is by being too close to somebody, not not from being in the water with them.
0: All right. Uh, 866-893-KPCC or the Airtalk page, kpcc.org. Greg tweets at Airtalk, I see people taking solo walks and even driving, wearing masks. Am I right in thinking that's not a recommended practice?
1: Well, here's the thing with the masks. Um, you know, Some jurisdictions have been recommending masks for everybody when they're out in public. And so if you wanna be a good member of society and a team player, then it's appropriate to wear the masks. Obviously, when you're in your own car, you're not gonna be transmitting to anybody and you're not gonna be at risk from getting it from anybody. When you're out for a walk, you may pass by somebody um, on the sidewalk. And so theoretically, even if you're out for a walk alone, wearing the mask is appropriate.
0: Uh, In the city of Pasadena, I've mentioned this before, but the city actually put out a statement because they were getting calls complaining about residents uh, exercising and walking around without masks. And the city responded, we want people to exercise in their own neighborhoods and that if they're practicing social distancing, we don't want to impede with a mask their ability to exercise. So I thought that was interesting, the city taking kind of the proactive stance that if so... Social distancing can be maintained, that you don't have to wear a mask when out, you know, briskly walking, running, bicycle uh, riding. 866-893-KPCC. Brenda in Long Beach says, can we put our cloth masks in a microwave to kill the germs?
1: No, it's not recommended to to microwave or use dry heat, such as putting it in the oven. Um, the, the microwave um, heats things inconsistently. And so it's you're not sure, you're not going to be confident that you've inactivated the virus in the microwave.
0: Okay. Uh, Zara in Glendale says, my father is 95. That's great, Zara, 95. But he has an eye appointment for his glaucoma. Should I take him?
1: Yeah, I would call the doctor. I mean, glaucoma is a serious disease. We want to make sure that he doesn't have any um a vision loss from that. Um I would presume that the ophthalmologist um will be wearing a mask and that your your father will be wearing a mask at the time too. And obviously the uh, ophthalmologist in order to examine the eye um has to get very close. So, yeah, pro- appropriate precautions would be used.
0: Dr. Blumberg, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it.
1: Great. Thank you, Larry.
0: Thank you. UC Davis Children's Hospital, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, and Professor at the noted UC Davis School of Medicine, Dr. Dean Blumberg. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPECC. We have all these studies that are flying around about antibodies uh, and testing that's being done, uh, trying to determine what uh, particular types of interventions with COVID-19 might be effective, uh, what might even be harmful if patients are, are given them. All of this is particularly difficult because... We don't have the kind of time uh, to have peer-reviewed studies, double-blind studies, and the like. So, oftentimes, uh, health uh, practitioners are having to dive in with very limited or even contradictory information. Joining us to talk about how we should weigh these kinds of of you know very quickly conducted studies is Dr. Uh, Ivan uh, Oransky. Uh, Dr. Oransky is co-creator of the blog Retraction Watch. It focuses on retractions of studies in science journals. He's also vice president of editorial at Medscape and teaches medical journalism at NYU's science, health, and environmental reporting program. Dr. Oransky, thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me, Larry.
0: So we are in a very difficult time here where we crave information because the stakes are so high, but the typical sorts of peer-reviewed studies um, take time. So how, how, first of all, how are, in your view, health professionals weeding through all this?
2: Well, you know, on the front lines, it's hard to weed through anything, even if it was a, you know, carefully done study that you could trust. It'd be hard when you're working the kinds of hours that doctors and nurses and others are working to sift through it. So I I think, you know, first of all, hats off to all of them. Uh, But if you do have the moment or if you at least want to get guidelines and you want to have your scientific societies help you with that, you know, what do you trust? And I think that a good rule of thumb, whether we're in the midst of a pandemic or not, is any single study will likely turn out to be wrong. It's when you have a sort of a mass of evidence, a critical mass of evidence going in a particular direction. It doesn't mean it has to be perfect. You do have to make a decision at some point about what to trust and what seems valid. But generally, the first study isn't going to give you the answer. You may get lucky, but if we keep doing what, frankly, we're doing, which is rushing to publication and maybe cutting corners or at least not doing things as rigorously as we want, you know, we're going to end up with a problem.
0: When we look at earlier pandemics or epidemics, I mean, going back to SARS, Ebola, with some of the earliest studies that came out about those uh, when they were new viruses, um, how much how many of those studies were just flat out wrong?
2: You know, I want to be careful here because wrong means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I, I sort of think about it more as, you know, rigorous and useful. And most of what came out in the early days turned out to not be particularly useful. doesn't mean it was fraudulent, doesn't mean people were doing the wrong thing. But if you look back particularly at Ebola, only because that's you know give or take uh you know five six, seven you know five, six years ago, excuse me, you know things were somewhat different back then in terms of the speed of publishing in terms of how many papers were available for everyone to see, but it wasn't as dramatically different as say when SARS was happening in like 2003. But a lot of those studies during Ebola, they didn't turn out, they didn't pan out. Again, nothing wrong with doing them. But, you know, some of the drugs that we're now testing for, uh, you know, for coronavirus were actually tested back then and had not very useful results or, or they not very positive results. Uh, and that's, again, that's all fine to study. You actually want to study rather than just go and use them but a lot of it turned out to either be wrong in terms of what we knew about the disease uh, or in terms of what the treatments were.
0: We're talking with Dr. Uh, Ivan Oransky, who's co-creator of the Retraction Watch blog. If you have questions for him about how we best weigh studies uh, in these very early days of COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. One of the things we've seen with the novel coronavirus is... uh, different studies that have come out about um, how the virus is spread. You know, is it aerosolized, for example? Um, how far would someone have to be uh, to, to be safe? There's a lot of conflicting information about that. And so, you know, what do we know now about um, the ability of the virus to travel?
2: Yeah, so the, we know that the virus is able to travel, and that hasn't really been controversial. The question is, in what forms does it travel that are still problematic you know, or infectious, right? And so, for example, we just yesterday wrote about a study that came out of a lab in China where they had tried to sort of figure out what had happened on a particular you know, bus in terms of who got infected based on someone who was known to be positive. And based on the findings, they said, well, the virus can travel 15 feet when it's aerosolized and still be infectious. In other words, still be virulent. Um, Well, it's virulent anyway. It can still be infectious and viable. Uh, It turns out that study was retracted yesterday. We're not actually sure why, but it's a good example of how something we thought we knew, 15 feet, based on that study, based on some press coverage of it, which picked it up and even had a schematic, you know, a model of the bus in their coverage, turned out to be wrong. So the six feet is, you know, based again, not on it's not that it's precisely six feet. It's never going to be precisely six feet. But as a rule of thumb and as sort of a an overwhelming or at least a preponderance of evidence, I should say, that seems to be closer to what we think is. Legitimate, And it may still be that we are uh, having an abundance of caution there, but it's hard to argue in the midst of a pandemic that we should, you know, be a million times preci- more precise than we're able to be given what we
0: know. We'll continue with Dr. Ivan Aransky joining us on AirTalk, co-creator of the blog Retraction Watch. And again, you have questions for him about how we should best weigh studies that, uh, particularly in these early days of COVID-19, haven't had much time and haven't had much of any peer review. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page KPCC.org back in 90 seconds. Wonderful to have you with us on AirTalk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about scientific studies and how much weight we give them at this point when COVID-19 is such a new phenomenon. We're talking with the co-creator of the Retraction Watch blog, Dr. Ivan Oransky. He teaches medical journalism at NYU's Science, Health and Environmental Reporting Program, He's vice president of editorial at Medscape as well. We're at 866. 893 KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We have another antibody study, this one out of New York. We've already had Los Angeles County uh, with USC researchers and Stanford up in the Bay Area uh, has done an antibody uh, study of Santa Clara County residents. The New York City one uh, of around 3,000 people found 14% had antibodies suggesting they'd been exposed to COVID-19. Dr. Oransky, I want to ask you about these antibody tests because there are a lot of questions about methodology, about what the tests really show us, uh, false findings in the tests and the like. When you see something like that, how much weight do you give it?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great example. I just heard about that study, uh, you know, actually about an hour, not even an hour before, uh, you know, you and I are talking now. And so I haven't had a chance to look at it. So uh, maybe it'll sound like punting, but I think it's the intellectually honest thing to do. I'll tell you, haven't looked at it, don't know much about that one. Um, I will tell you that, you know, I have looked carefully and we've actually had some reporting on Medscape looking and really digging into the numbers of that Santa Clara study that you mentioned, the one up, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, and then, uh, of course, the one at USC and, and LA as well. And those studies, again, very interesting. Um, it, their methodology is very clear. They they spell out what they did. But what that allows us to do is to sort of question some of the assumptions. And also, you mentioned the tests. The the problem with a when you when you're doing a test of any kind, especially a qualitative one, like in other words, not looking at numbers so much as whether something is there or not. That's an oversimplification. But when you're looking at something that is when you're looking for something that's quite rare the rate of false positives can be very very high and so and, and that has to do with what's known as pretest probability that's what statisticians like to call it and so that the degree of a false of false positives can sway the results or skew the results pretty dramatically so that's one thing to keep in mind the other is what kinds of populations you're looking at so in the Santa Clara study the population that they ended up having, the sample they had, was not all that representative, number one, of the demographics of Santa Clara County. Uh, and number and then part of that, sort of number two, is that it's, it was because it was recruited from Facebook. And that's going to, again, nothing wrong with, you know, recruiting from Facebook, but you have to be aware of the limitations and the skew of that study. So, again, I think this is a perfect example of, okay, so there's the Santa Clara study. There's the USC-LA study. There's now the New York one, which I'm going to look at as soon as we get off the phone. Um, I'm sure there'll be others. Let's put them all together and actually try and figure out what's going on rather than, you know, because there are other studies that have shown not the opposite so much, but much smaller numbers. So. Let's gather those and figure it out.
0: And just to add a little more, and this is not to put you on the spot with a conclusion, I just find it interesting. Governor Cuomo, he he himself uh, cautioned the data was preliminary. The sample is small, again, about 3,000 people. And the uh, people recruited were from shopping centers and grocery stores. So um, the self-selections, obviously, they're healthy enough to be out to be shopping at that point. Uh, New York City, City, by the way, had an even higher exposure rate, 21 percent statewide. It was that 14 percent. So you know, it's just an example. And, you know, Governor Cuomo pointed this out in his news conference this morning. Uh, that's a pretty narrow selection of, of of the total New York population, Dr. Oransky.
2: Oh, that's right. And I um, although right at the moment I'm speaking to you from Western Massachusetts, I you know, work in New York and uh, teach in New York, as, as you know, Medscape is based in New York as well. So uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in these numbers, uh, even just personally, rather than just looking at them sort of as an academic, if you will. Uh, but, you know, this, you know, New York has been hard hit by this. And a lot of the questions about the Santa Clara study, for example, were, well, if you extrapolate that to New York, it would mean that more than the entire population of New York Given what's known as the confidence intervals, in other words, the degree of um, sort of how confident you can be about the results, the range, more than the entire population of New York would have had to have been infected with COVID for those results to be sort of consistent. So you can see how there's even those ranges can really they can just make a big difference.
0: What about how news media report this. Uh, obviously, with Medscape, you've got a level of expertise there that not every news organization has. So what, what are the things you think it's important for those of us talking about these studies to keep in mind the best ways to contextualize them, particularly in this era of clickbait, where even, you know, large and, and well-regarded news organizations will quickly get these studies out with a grabber headline?
2: Well, that's right. So, you know, I am, I should, you know, whether it's full disclosure or a, a promotion, you'll be up, you know, you and your listeners can judge, but I'm president of the Association of Healthcare Journalists, as well as teaching medical journals at NYU. So these are issues I think about a lot, and frankly, worry about a lot, because I see the, uh, the pressures that my colleagues uh, at all sorts of newsrooms and working as freelancers and what have you are under. And so how do you balance that? Because you do want to get information out to people. And it's important that we, frankly, hold uh, researchers and institutions accountable just the same way we should hold politicians accountable. I'm not trying to say they're, they are all have the same motivations, but we do have to at least ask tough questions about these data and what have you. And, I, you know, one of the ways that I think we can do that is you can sort of summarize what we know now in a way that is quite compelling and actually may have end up with a better answer than if you just sort of follow every study and then forget that the last study happened. And again, I get the the urge for clickbait. I, I understand the need to drive page views and all of that. But, you know, I think that's a really unsatisfying experience uh, and certainly non-informative, uninformative experience for a reader or a listener or a viewer. And so if we're think, keeping that in mind, because, you know, readers and again, listeners and viewers as well, they're gonna they're going to tune out. They're going to click to another site. They're going to put down the newspaper, uh, if they feel like every day they're hearing a totally different story and there isn't at least the acknowledgement that there's a reason why every day they're hearing a somewhat different
3: story.
0: Uh, Norma writes on the page right now, widespread anecdotal evidence, whether it's blood clotting, heart damage, etc., witnessed by medical personnel in the thick of things seems to be pretty valuable. Uh, how, how do you weigh it, Dr. Oransky?
2: Well I think it's valuable of put in context. I completely agree with that actually. And you know at Medscape where we are uh, you know our readers and our again viewers are and users are medical professionals whether they're doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals, they understand that these are really important anecdotal bits of information, stories from their colleagues around the country around the world. We've, we've featured coverage from what happened in Italy and what experience did they have. We have videos of, from China, actually, experts from Wuhan who have talked about what their experience was. Well, those are actually all really valuable if they're put in context. So, yes, this is what happened. And you know what? It might be worth trying. There's a you know, really active discussion right now about ventilator protocols. What kinds of mix of oxygen should you use and what settings should you use? All fairly arcane to, the, to most readers. But certainly very important. And I can tell you that our readers at Medscape are really, you know, they're lapping that up. And I can understand why, because they want to know and they don't want to wait for this long process of vetting, which is critically important, but which, again, does take time if done properly and well.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Oransky. Really appreciate your joining us today and talking about how we best weigh uh, medical studies that are out on COVID-19. We appreciate it.
2: My pleasure, Larry.
0: Thank you. Co-creator of the Retraction Watch blog, Dr. Ivan Oransky, joining us on AirTalk. Coming up, we'll talk about the nation's largest pension fund. It's right here in California, known as CalPERS, the California Public Employee uh, retirement system, and we're going to talk about how it's faring in the wake of the market volatility that we've seen. The stakes are very big for cities, counties, and for the state of California. We'll be back in just a minute on Air Talk. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope, uh, even with all that's going on, that you've had a good morning so far. And turn our attention now to a subject that's importance of all of us. Uh, you don't have to be. Uh, a CalPERS pensioner like me, uh, I'm I'm in CalPERS from my days working at Pasadena City College, and millions of people are, but the effect of CalPERS and its pension system are huge on cities, on counties, and on the state of California. It's uh, suffered, of course, like everybody has in the wake of uh, what's happened on Wall Street, but to try and quantify it, that is senior report for the Wall Street Journal's Financial Investigations and Projects team, uh, Cesari Podkul. Cesari, thank you for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me, Larry. Uh,
0: so let's talk, first of all, about uh, what you wrote about a, a, an investing strategy change that CalPERS undertook not uh, too long before uh, the huge downturn in the market.
4: Sure. So maybe just for the benefit of your listeners, we should just start with the numbers. At the beginning of the year, the total market value of the CalPERS fund was about $395 billion. Um, of course, through February, we had rising markets. So I think it peaked out uh, at just over $400 billion. And then once the coronavirus pandemic and the related shocks uh, started uh Blocking the markets, it fell to, I think, a bottom of about 330 billion. It has since recovered somewhat. I think it's around 370 billion. So that's a sort of roller coaster ride we've had. It's been an epic sell off. And what CalPERS did a couple of years ago as it was planning for and preparing for exactly this kind of situation was it invested in a two funds designed to provide um, essentially insurance against an epic sell-off of this kind. And then they also developed a third internal fund to kind of do a similar strategy. The, the basic idea was that if there's going to be an epic market sell-off, these funds are designed to basically provide a big payoff uh, at exactly that moment. Um, so CalPERS began doing that in around two. Uh, 2017. Uh, it was building up those positions through last year when it decided uh, October to uh, begin to uh, exit those uh, uh, to do something else instead to try to mitigate risk. And so uh, what ended up happening was they basically exited um, these uh, funds designed to provide this kind of uh, protection against an epic sell-off right before one came along.
0: So uh, potentially bad timing, although CalPERS has performed better than the market as a whole, hasn't it?
4: Well, it, yes, it's uh, it, CalPERS isn't invested purely in stocks. If you were just to compare uh, the performance of uh, CalPERS against stocks, it's, uh, you know, they also have a mix of bonds and other things in their portfolio. So I think uh, year to date, the S&P is down something like 15% and CalPERS um, is, uh, is is down less than that. So
0: I think we just lost Cesare. We'll get him back on. That's Cesare Podkul, senior reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Also joining us is the chief invest, deputy chief investment officer for CalPERS, uh, Dan Bienvenu. Uh, Dan, are you there? Okay, we apparently have lost both of our callers as our uh, call screening software system has just collapsed. We'll try and get that back up uh, and uh, be able to talk with our guests here on 89.3 KPCC. Uh, we're going to take a very brief break. We'll continue with our callers once we get them back in just a moment on AirTalk. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. My apologies that right in the middle of our segment to close the hour, uh, we technically lost everything at all. The whole phone system crashed. And uh, we will talk to those guests about CalPERS coming up very soon on a future program. My apologies uh, about that. that we are, are not able to reconstitute it for this hour of air talk coming up a little bit later, we'll be talking about wildlife that you've seen around Southern California that wasn't there, wasn't visible before as fewer people are on the streets as parks are closed, golf courses, and the like, we're seeing the kinds of uh, wildlife that we haven't seen so much of, so we'll open up the phones to hear from uh, listeners i was I was uh, on the phone with my mother the other night, looking out the window and the golf course that's um, down the ways. For me, I I look up, I see this thing bounding across the golf course. It's a deer. Um, Never in the 20-plus years we've lived there have I seen a deer on that golf course, but there are no players on it, of course, now. So we'll find out what you've seen lately that you hadn't seen previously. But right now, we turn our attention to the risk-reward of starting to gradually reopen the economy. We are seeing states Like Georgia, Oklahoma announced that it's going to be reopening a number of businesses tomorrow, attempting to engage in social distancing and masking of members of the public. But my question for you is, how far are you willing to go in observing public health requirements that might go hand in hand, almost certainly will go hand in hand with any gradual reopening? For example, if everybody in a movie theater has to, you know, sit six feet apart from everybody else and you're used to going, you know, with your friends or extended family members to the movies, you're going to be okay with that. What about wearing a mask on an indefinite ongoing basis when out in public? What about other kinds of public health measures that you might be asked to undertake What sorts of changes are you willing to do? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Joining me is political reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler. Stephen, thanks so much. Share with us how these early days of business reopenings in Georgia is going.
5: Well, thanks for having me. And uh, right now, the plan is, under Governor Brian Kemp's order, That beginning tomorrow, some businesses that were completely closed, think of barbershops and bowling alleys and hair and nail salons, may be able to go back to what's called minimum basic operations. Now, what this means is not that everyone's going to go, you know, aim for a perfect game and get their quarantine beard trimmed. But it means that these businesses that were closed can be open to do administrative tasks as long as they follow about 20 or so health, safety, and social distancing guidelines, like making sure everyone washes their hands and six feet away in workspaces and other things like that. But that's easier said than done. So. A lot of businesses aren't really sure what tomorrow's going to hold.
0: Yeah, I was I was seeing that uh, some businesses are pushing back against this, still don't feel it's safe or their employees don't necessarily feel it's safe. Um, so, uh, I mean, is the thought that for those businesses that that put their toe in the water here that other businesses might wait and see and watch and, and see how well this works?
5: Well, most other businesses in Georgia are also under this minimum basic operations standard um, that, practically speaking, again, means that a lot of people are teleworking or not really being in their offices. On Monday, restaurants, which for now have been offering curbside service or takeout only, restaurants are going to be able to open up their in-restaurant dining as long as they keep people socially distant, apart from each other. But even then, many restaurant owners have said they're not doing that until they feel it's safe.
0: I also wonder about the economics of that. And Stephen, if you encountered restaurant owners who say, you know, if I reopen under that kind of distancing and have that many fewer tables, with the margins we run, that's not going to be profitable. Is that also an issue?
5: That's certainly an issue. You know, there are some places. Think, you know, Waffle House, which is a, you know, based here in Georgia. You can't take chairs out of a Waffle House, so you may have to have, you know, certain booths blocked off and things like that. And so, in many cases, a lot of restaurant owners I've heard from and seen say it might be even more effort to make their in-person dining rooms available, especially when for the last month they've figured out how to do to go orders only or curbside delivery or you know you name it to be able to accommodate those workers and that's not even including places that have just completely closed because they can't pivot to this new coronavirus era restrictions
0: We're talking with Georgia Public Broadcasting political reporter Stephen Fowler talking about the easing of the stay-at-home order in the state of Georgia, which has proven very controversial there. In fact, even President Trump, who has been talking about uh, gradually reopening the economy, has had critical things to say about the the Georgia governor. Uh, And Stephen Fowler, has that caught people by surprise and left the governor um, standing more alone?
6: Well, you know,
5: it's been very surreal in the last 24 hours to kind of watch Georgia politics because you had the president saying that he wanted states to push to reopen. He outlined guidelines to help states reopen. And then Georgia Governor Brian Kemp took some steps to reopen. And even Tuesday night, the president said Brian Kemp was a very capable man and in moving to reopen his state. And then last night at the briefing, you know, he dropped a whole fleet of buses on top of the governor for his decision. So uh, a lot of people are questioning, you know, why the sudden switch. And maybe there's some more politics involved with that. But, you know, the governor has stuck to his guns and said that it's a data driven approach, that they're gradually opening things. It's not going to be business as usual. And, you no, know, Basically, the president can say what he wants, but the governor, at the end of the day, is the one in charge of reopening Georgia.
0: We're talking with uh, Stephen Fowler, Georgia Public Broadcasting political reporter. Oklahoma is also going to follow. Movie theaters are going to be opening with uh, physical distancing in the movie theaters um, for restaurants. Um, Many of the places that are talking about this, talking about masks going in and out. Stephen, is that part of Georgia that people have to be masked coming into and, and leaving the restaurants?
5: Well, Larry, the CDC, which is based you know, in Atlanta, recommends that people who do go out in public wear some sort of face covering or cloth mask. The governor said if people must go out, that they must wear face masks. And Georgia is still under a shelter-in-place order until April 30th. So even though some of these businesses may open, people still aren't supposed to be going out. But mm. as part of that minimum basic operations I told you about, Those are some of the things that employees and customers are encouraged. Well, employees must wear masks, but customers are encouraged to wear masks and gloves and have hand sanitizer more readily available at different places. And so, you know, it's not just meant to reintroduce people back to a normal routine. And there are a number of health and safety precautions that businesses and customers are supposed to follow to make this gradual reopening Uh, not lead to another outbreak.
0: Of course, when eating inside a restaurant, you're not going to be able to cover your mouth for obvious reasons. Uh, Also joining us from UC Irvine, Associate Professor of Public Health uh, and also an expert on the historic 1918 Spanish flu, Andrew Neumer. Uh, Dr. Neumer, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having me, Larry. Uh,
0: so from a public health perspective, your thoughts about some of these states gradually reopening non-essential businesses, does it make sense to, to try this out and closely monitor if, if hotspots develop?
4: Well, in your introduction to the show, you said risk versus reward, and I think that's an excellent way to frame it. From a purely epidemiological standpoint, you know, we need to stay on lockdown until july of 2021 or perhaps even later and note that i said 2021 not yeah
0: i know we gasped yes silently gasped
4: but you know that's simply not going to happen it's not going to happen any anywhere in the united states it's not going to happen anywhere in the world people will not simply lock down for 15 months straight or longer And what will happen is, you know, black market economies will start popping up, there'll be there'll be a black market barbershop in some warehouse somewhere. And nobody wants that either. So we have to strike a compromise. So it's a question of how we do it and when we do it. Uh, But we cannot simply just pulverize our entire economy.
0: So so you have to weigh then sort of how long people are willing to do this. Are you at all surprised how compliant people have been so many weeks into this? I have to say for myself, I would not have anticipated um, that with something like COVID-19. I mean, short of some sort of a virus that you walk out your front door and fall over dead. But, you know, short of that, that people would comply to this level. Uh, What do you think, Professor Neumann?
4: It's been amazing. Uh, I mean, the numbers in California are really complimentary The the cases are are relatively low. The deaths are relatively low. The, the, most importantly, perhaps the emergency departments and the ICUs are operating at less than 100 percent of capacity. And that's all because statewide we've bent the curve. Uh, we've really, uh, for the most part, done social distancing and it's working.
0: All right. Uh, If you have questions for uh, Andrew Neumer, uh, professor of public health, UCI, uh, or if you want to ask questions about what's happening in Georgia, uh, Georgia public broadcasting reporter Stephen Fowler with us. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. And my question for you is... If you were uh, ordered to wear a mask going to and from a restaurant and tables were going to be spaced a minimum six feet apart... Would you start going out to eat again? If you work in a restaurant, would you feel comfortable, masked, going back to work and serving diners uh, on the, in, with that sort of physical layout inside the restaurant? 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page KPCC.org. Julie in the Valley writes, until there's widespread testing, I, for one, am not risking my family's health for economic goals, compromising my husband's life for an hour in a restaurant, no way. That's Julie in the Valley. But Professor Neumer, how far are we from having widespread testing where anybody could have a test just whenever they wanted it?
4: Well, in Southern California, we're doing pretty well, um, but it's, it's not the case where anyone can just drive up to a certain location and get, and get a test there, you know, without coordinating beforehand. So, you know, we're not quite there yet. And, I mean, testing is going to be key. Uh, to all of this reopening, both the the testing for the virus, which is the testing about which we've heard so much in the last 12 weeks or so. And then and then now there's going to be antibody testing to see if you have had it. So we're going to be hearing a lot more about testing. I know everyone's probably sick of hearing about testing, but it's testing is going to be key to reopening the economy. Uh,
0: And you think we're just going to get used to wearing masks for the foreseeable future need to get used to that?
4: I, I think so. I mean, I think covering one's uh, nose and mouth in public is going to be part of our future in the in the medium term. And I mean, you know, it's important to, to to note that we're talking about covering your mouth somehow as best as you can. So so people are worried that you know masks aren't available to purchase, you know, proper professional masks. And uh, you know, I don't want to tell people that they need to do something that they can't do. But 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 we can cover our our nose and mouth in public. And yes, that will be part of our future in the next year or so.
0: Uh our listeners says well it's not getting a test when we want it's getting all of us tests but yeah the 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 test is only as good in that moment in time so it's not just that everybody's tested it's that everybody's continuously tested essentially when you want it uh or it is at a given period of time that would be the only way that you would be absolutely certain that someone uh doesn't have covid-19 and would potentially be spreading it 8668 KPCC. Norma writes on the page, seems to me one of the biggest problem with some public places is bathrooms. I have no problem going to the movies and sitting apart, but then I have to go to the restroom and there's no social distancing. Same with the park or same with the beach. Professor Neumer, how could that be dealt with?
4: Well, I I guess uh, we're all going to have to to get creative and uh, maybe, maybe, you know, uh, the restroom will be like in some gas stations where you have to get the key first. Um, You know, that's a very good point that your your listener makes. And, you know, as the government mandated lockdowns start to ease across the country and here in our Southern California region, all of your listeners are going to have to calibrate what level of risk that they are willing to take for themselves and for their household. So people are going to have to think about what's acceptable to them, and they're going to have to think actively about it.
0: All right. Uh, I want to thank you very much for being with us. That's Professor at UC Irvine, Andrew Neumer, uh, Associate Professor of Public Health. Uh, Also, my thanks to Georgia Public Broadcasting political reporter Stephen Fowler to talk about the impending opening of uh, non-essential businesses uh, under new guidelines in the state of Georgia. You're listening to Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We have much more to talk about on air talk a little bit later this hour about the types of wildlife you've been seeing that previously you hadn't noticed or weren't out in your neighborhood because of all the people scaring them off next we'll talk about whether nursing homes should be uh, protected from lawsuits over covid 19 illnesses and deaths back in one minute California's health care industry is lobbying Governor Newsom to sign an order that would protect doctors, hospitals, nursing homes, and senior care living facilities from lawsuits. The L.A. Times reports governors across the U.S. have signed similar orders and that Newsom likely will sign some sort of liability protection for the healthcare care industry, but families whose loved ones have died from COVID-19 in nursing homes and advocates for nursing home reforms are opposed to that sort of immunity. Joining us to talk about the issue uh, and whether there should be such liability protection is Maura Dolan, a legal affairs writer for the Los Angeles Times. She wrote the story that I just uh, uh, quoted from. Mora, good to have you with us again on AirTalk. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, with the other states that have done this, has this kind of liability protection varied in how far it goes, or is uh, do they seem to be largely cookie cutters of each other?
7: Uh, they're, they're similar, but they're one that the industry is advocating for California, I am told, is much broader And in the states that where these orders were issued, they were very, most of these states were very hard hit by the pandemic. And I was told that these other states do not have caps for medical malpractice damages as
0: California does. All right.
7: It makes a difference in how much you can get, obviously, in
0: a lawsuit. Sure. Um, and and I assume the concern that the industry is expressing is that if they're hit with a slew of COVID-19 lawsuits that, um, you know, for some of them, it puts them out of business. If you're talking about nursing homes or the liability for hospitals and doctors puts them in the hole.
7: Yeah, their argument was it would slow them down in responding to this emergency because they would have to second guess everything they did. And they're saying that the state wants nursing homes to accept COVID patients from the hospitals to free up room in the hospitals. And But if they can be sued for this because the, this incoming patient spread it to other people, uh, they'll have difficulty doing that in the future.
0: And has Newsom uh, telegraphed in any way what he's apt to do? You know, I'm only hearing
7: from second sources. Uh I mean, people who have talked to the administration because he did, his office didn't respond to our requests uh, for comment on this. But I've been told these other people have been told that he's going to issue something. But those who oppose it seem relieved that he didn't issue it immediately, and they suspect that his staff is working on it to perhaps narrow it from what the industry wanted.
0: All right. We're talking with Maura Dolan, Los Angeles Times legal affairs writer, has written about this effort uh, of health uh, um, facilities to be granted immunity, including nursing homes. We reached out, by the way, uh, to multiple organizations uh, who are engaging in this lobbying effort, including uh, the California Assisted Living Association, California Association for Health Facilities, California Medical Association. Uh, We also requested uh, representative of the California Hospital Association and Leading Edge, an advocacy organization. But we were uh, not hearing back from them in time uh, to include them in the conversation. Also with us is uh, founder and managing partner of the largest healthcare specialty law firm in Los Angeles, Nelson Hardiman. Harry Nelson, he's the author of From Obamacare to Trump Care, Why You Should Care, and The United States of Opioids, a prescription for liberating a nation in pain. Mr. Nelson, thank you very much for being with us. I know that that your firm consults a great deal with nursing homes. Uh, What are your thoughts about providing a blanket COVID-19 immunity to them?
8: Larry, uh, first of all, good to be with you. Um, Yeah, so obviously, uh, you know, uh, the nursing home industry, our clients uh, are are very interested in protection. Everyone's very worried about what the prospective lawsuits from the uh, plaintiff lawyers will be uh, for the deaths, which as of uh, yesterday, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported, exceed 10,000 uh, nationally. So, so the industry is terrified. Uh, the trade associations, for by the way, not only for nursing homes, but you mentioned uh, le- not leading age, which is really uh, addressing also uh, assisted livings, and the C- California Medical Association physician groups are all trying to lobby to get protected. So, so the industry thinks that this is what they need to be protected. As a as a lawyer who you know, addresses compliance issues and uh, on the ground in these facilities. I'm not so sure that that's the uh, the right answer.
0: And so, what's your concern about providing that kind of immunity? You think it just allows bad actors to continue?
8: Yeah, I think I think what we see over and over again is when we change the standards uh, for liability, we incentivize different behavior. So when we If we say that, for example, as I understand, and I haven't seen a full draft of the bill, but from what I understand, the bill is proposing to not allow the normal negligence standard uh, to apply and to require some serious gross negligence or, even worse, willful misconduct. What we see over and over again is when you do things like that, you lower the the penalties for not being careful, for not being in compliance, and inevitably, uh, when there aren't the right motivations and incentives in place, Uh, you don't see the kind of behavior that we need to motivate from uh, facilities. So I'm in favor of addressing the practical financial issue, but really still keeping in place uh, requirements that motivate these facilities to operate uh, carefully and to protect life as much as possible. So
0: how would you protect the the healthcare organizations from just serial lawsuits that put them under?
8: I think what we need to do is establish uh, to really come out clearly with what reasonable what reasonableness means, meaning what does a reasonable facility do, and to make clear that if you are following CDC guidelines, if you are following state licensing guidelines, and, and if we call on the California Department of Public Health, which licenses these entities to put out very clear standards of what's required, then facilities that follow those basically should be treated as being behaving reasonably and unfortunately the the, ter- the tragedy of this crisis is that many nursing homes that are doing the right things are still having uh... terrible numbers of contagion and death um, and but but if we and then you can go after and target the facilities that are not doing the right things and i'm i'm still seeing troubling behavior out there and getting stories of facilities that i frankly don't understand
0: so what are some examples of poor practices you're hearing of
8: So, so one of the things that concerns me is a local Los Angeles facility that, for weeks now, has been refusing to test residents. That basically has gotten requests from family members who are concerned about contagion, uh, and from doctors. And I'm I'm hearing directly from doctors that there are certain facilities are still refusing to test patients and refusing to test staff. And I sort of, to me, it's that's an ostrich uh, approach. You know, that that just doesn't work. And and that's that's one issue. The other issue is a lack of transparency, you know, uh, about what's going on in the facility. And I'm hearing lots of complaints that people just can't get straight answers of whether their loved ones, their parents, are in facilities where there are cases, and if so, how, how bad the problem is. And so I think I think those are two of the issues that are most concerning to me.
0: Are facilities that have uh, COVID nineteen patients in them required to notify family members of that? Uh, you know, I'm speaking specifically of nursing homes.
8: There's no, you know, as of last weekend, uh, the state passed a new requirement that they notify the state, uh, but there's no legal requirement in place that they notify the families directly. And we're seeing um, a real uh, – a lot of foot dragging and facilities not moving quickly enough to, uh, to give information to relatives. I mean, I, I am frankly hearing a lot of relatives who are calling facilities and feeling lucky if somebody even picks up the phone. And when they do and, – and by the way, I, I feel bad for these facilities because there's a lot of – they're short-staffed. They have employees who are out sick. And they also have staff who are afraid to come into the buildings, but they're not, the people just can't, can barely get an answer. And when they do get an answer, unfortunately, in too many cases, it's not a straight one about what's really going on.
0: When you're talking about refusal to test, are those people who are symptomatic, or do you mean routine testing just to determine whether members of the staff have been exposed or not?
8: No, I, I, for example, a case, I had a case where family members were complaining to a physician, a geriatric physician I work with. Uh, that they were there were some symptoms. It wasn't crystal. It wasn't clear cut whether their relative was uh, sick, but they they were there were enough symptoms. There was respiratory uh, breathing issues, and they wanted before it was severe. They wanted testing, um, and and they wanted to know about hospitalization, and the uh, facility just has been pushing back firmly and saying we are not testing our residents
0: under any circumstance. Okay, and is that to your knowledge because they're having a difficult time getting the test swabs, or, or is there more to it than that?
8: I, I honestly think there's a couple things going on. I think, number one, uh, it, it may be that testing, it, 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 there's some difficulty getting testing, although I don't think that's the real issue. I think they're afraid uh, to test broadly because there have been a few facilities here in lo- in the local area that have both assisted living and skilled nursing that once they tested uh, in areas where they knew they had one person contagious, they found many, many more, including many seniors who were uh, uh, infected, though not symptomatic, and, and, and spreading the, uh, potentially spreading the virus. And I think they're also afraid because uh, if they get a positive test, they, they're concerned that they will have an obligation to hospitalize, and they'll be reducing their census. And one of the sad realities of this business, of all these healthcare facility businesses, is that you have to keep your census up, and so they don't want to have to be in a position where they either have to transfer a patient to a hospital or, or more likely what's happening is these facilities are being emptied out because people are taking their parents home, and so they're not getting, the facilities aren't getting paid. So the economics of the facilities are driving facilities to want to keep residents on site uh, so they get paid, and not have people pull their parents out and take them home to care for them.
0: We're talking with attorney Harry Nelson of uh, Nelson-Hardiman Law Firm in Los Angeles. He works with nursing homes and senior care facilities on compliance and risk management. Maura Dolan, Los Angeles Times legal affairs writer, also joining us. Uh, Harry, what what about... um, the economics of nursing homes, you know, setting aside what, what the you know, census is, uh, beds occupied at a particular uh, facility. On the liability front, are you concerned that if the door is left open for liability in other than truly gross negligence, that that could put a number of these places out of business? And, you know, with the aging population, that's going to be a problem.
8: I, I think that's a legitimate concern. Uh, so I do. I do think. By the way, even long before COVID-19, California has one of the most um, pro uh, um, elder abuse, pro pro uh, resident anti facility elder abuse laws in the country. So these facilities have already been under the gun whenever there's anything that goes wrong. And I think that the COVID-19 crisis is going to lead to a flood of cases. Um, and there's going to be a feeding frenzy, and I, I absolutely think that there is a legitimate concern here that that process needs to be managed, and we have to do something to to, to take care of this out-of-control legal challenge that we have of, of a system that encourages lots of lawsuits to be filed and forces out payments. I think it's, it's a problem not only for the nursing homes themselves but for the insurance companies uh, that we could be talking about, you know, multi-billion dollar. Uh, uh, losses here uh, that could put a lot of people out of business.
0: Maura Dolan, L.A. Times. Um, where is uh, the majority of the pushback against this immunity coming from?
7: Uh, from that nursing home uh, reform coalition. It's they're really they're the ones who lobbied for years to get these elder abuse laws on the books. Uh, they are against it, and the trial lawyers of California, the consumer lawyers, they are opposed to it as well. They're not – they do, but they said – the trial lawyers say that existing law already has a lot of protection, both federal and state law, for uh, medical workers during an emergency. And they said that every time there is an emergency, the medical industry comes out and seeks immunities and that they had anticipated that they would do it this time. And actually, they sent the letter to the governor three days before the health industry asked. For <laughs> it's a very powerful lobby, the health industry, and it's every organization. I mean, so many organizations signed that letter.
0: Yeah uh it's it's astounding and so um have have the um reform advocates talked about the issue of of defensive medicine or 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 they just think that, that that's a red herring that that that's not going to be an issue
7: they said that these nursing homes and obviously not all of them i'm sure there's some very good ones but the vast majority are for profit They pay their staff very, very little, so staff members are forced to work more than one job. So during a time of pandemic, they could be spreading the contagion, the infection from one facility to another, and that many of them had really high rates of infections of other diseases prior to this. And I think we quoted an expert saying one of the things that they get cited for uh, over and over again is not washing their hands.
0: (laughs) All right, Maura, thank you so much. We appreciate your um, elaborating on the piece you wrote about this in the Los Angeles Times. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Maura Dolan, LA Times legal affairs writer, and our thanks to attorney Harry Nelson, who specializes in healthcare care law. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Coming up, I want to hear from you what kinds of wildlife, birds, uh, mammals, any kind of wildlife that is new for you to see in your neighborhood as a result of fewer cars on the road and just fewer people getting in the way of the wildlife. 866 893 KPCC Back in 90 seconds on AirTalk. I've been hearing from people who live in New York City that um, when they go out for their evening walks, they're seeing a type of wildlife they've never seen in such abundance. That's right, the uh, typical street rat. (laughs) Rats are apparently everywhere on the streets of New York because the typical restaurant uh, garbage uh, containers that they're used to being able to get into are no longer being filled with food so the poor rats of gone out in the streets running around trying to find ways to uh, survive this. But here in Southern California, my question for you is, what kinds of wildlife are you seeing in greater abundance as we have fewer cars on the road, as things are much quieter in the evening hours, fewer people are out and about? We're at 866-893-KPCC or the Air Talk page, kpcc.org. With me from the University of California, Cooperative Extension, Human Wildlife Interactions Advisor, Neve Quinn. Neve, it's good to have you with us again on Air Talk. We appreciate it. Um, first of all, have, have you noticed anything in your neighborhood more than what you'd seen before? Neve, are you there? All right, we'll try and get her back. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Also with us is the president of uh, science for the nonprofit Friends of Griffith Park, uh, Jerry Hans. Jerry, good to have you with us.
6: Good to be with you, Larry.
0: So, Jerry, what, what are we seeing in Griffith Park these days?
6: Well, this may be stating the obvious, but, of course, the big difference in wildlife behavior is based upon the lack of noise disturbance uh, that they're experiencing. And it's incredibly peaceful in Griffith Park for the wildlife right now. One of the big factors, I think, is the reduction in noise because we don't have all the noisy helicopters coming by. That's gone to absolutely zero. And then also we have um, a major lack of cars, and some of the roads that were open to cars are now closed off to cars, and only hikers are allowed on those.
0: All right. And um, so uh, obviously Griffith Park always has plenty of deer and raccoons and squirrels and things like that. Are they more visible
6: Yes, I think they are. For example, uh, along these closed off roads, just anecdotally, I'm seeing and hearing more, more of the shy birds, uh, California quail, uh, spotted towhees, and the California thrashers. Uh, these are species, uh, you know, unlike mockingbirds that you have in your home, uh, that normally are tucked you know, a little further into the park, uh, away from the roads and the cars. Another big difference on these roads is the road kill has gone to absolutely zero, which is really great. I've seen so many western toads, uh, snakes, king snakes, ringneck snakes, and even deer uh, are a major... A hazard for wildlife uh, on roads with cars in Griffith Park.
0: We're talking with President of the Nonprofit Friends of Griffith Park, Jerry Hans uh, with us, and I think we have back Neve Quinn, University of California's Cooperative Extension Human Wildlife Interactions Advisor. Neve, it's good to have you with us again. Uh, are you hearing from a lot more people that they're uh, they're seeing wildlife that they they hadn't noticed before?
9: Yeah, Larry, we're certainly getting a lot of inquiries about people seeing a lot more coyotes and and different types of wildlife. But, um, you know, we have a couple of coyotes. We have them collared um, across Los Angeles County. And, you know, their behavior hasn't really changed much at all. What seems like is happening is, is that our behavior has changed the most. And I think that when we're not all stuck on the freeway for five hours a day trying to get here, there and everywhere, we have maybe a little bit more time to notice what's going on around us. Um, But that doesn't mean that the wildlife isn't, um, you know, changing. But certainly I think it would take a lot longer for some of our larger wildlife like our um, our coyotes and our mountain lions to change their
0: behavior significantly. Uh, I was mentioning I'd, I'd seen uh, deer on the golf course where now there are no golfers and uh, they're deer in the hills, uh, certainly adjacent to the golf course. Um, but it's the first time I'd seen them out there as they now pretty much have it to themselves. Asking listeners what you're seeing that you hadn't seen before or noticed as much. 866-893-KPCC. Are you seeing certain types of animals Come out who might have been uh, a little shyer when more people were out and about. 866 893 KPECC. Uh, Also with us is Annette in Palms. You're on AirTalk. Hi, how are you? Good. Go ahead, please.
9: Well, I just wanted to uh, give a shout out to the Natural History Museum and say that this weekend is the City Nature Challenge, which uh, started out as a contest between Los Angeles and San Francisco, but now it's worldwide. Uh, so, anytime from midnight tonight until midnight Monday night, I'm sorry, midnight Friday night, so Saturday morning until Monday night, um, everybody should t- document what they see, take some pictures, send it into iNaturalist using the app, um, and it can be spiders, lizards pill
7: bugs, snails, birds,
0: all right. Very good. Well, it's a very good time to have the City Nature Challenge take place, uh, as long as people, of course, are doing physical distancing at the same time they do it. Annette, thanks very much. 866 893 KPECC. What sorts of wildlife are you seeing that's new, different, or in greater numbers in your neighborhood? Will in South LA says, I see many more opossums on the street. Um, yeah, I guess because fewer cars, it's a lot safer. We were uh, hearing about, in Griffith Park, not seeing the roadkill, which is great, uh, that we're seeing previously because of that. 866-893-KPCC. Zach, in Highland Park, what are you seeing more of?
1: Yeah, hey, uh, lots of a bird called a red-whiskered bull bull.
0: A bull bull?
1: Yeah, yeah, from India, apparently.
0: Oh, so they're not natives here, huh?
1: No. No, but a really beautiful song and really playful. Kind of look like a cardinal, but a different coloring.
0: Wow. And where are you seeing them? In trees or or rooftops? Where are you seeing them?
1: Uh, Predominantly in trees, feeding off of berries.
0: All right, Zach, thanks very much. Red-whiskered bulbuls. Neve Quinn, you familiar with those? I am
9: not. I am a mammal ecologist, Larry. So if it doesn't have four legs, I probably don't know the answer.
0: (laughs) Sounds beautiful, though. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Mike in Glendora, what are you seeing more of?
3: Hi there, Larry. Uh, There's a pack of wild boar that live underneath the old town area in Glendora. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a couple of dozen of them. I've seen them uh, over the last six months. I've seen them a couple of times, but uh, eight or ten times. Over Since this COVID thing has been going on, I take my dog Lily for a walk every night, and I go around the corner, and there's, you know, the washes that come down uh, from the mountains to take the the rainwater uh, uh, into the ocean. It it connects with the San Gabriel River, and uh, as I walk along there, there's the motion detector light that comes on in the back alley, and sometimes they'll be just down there uh, drinking the water, and the light usually scares them, and they run back up the street. They live underneath Glendora Avenue. There's a series of culverts.
0: So without cars going down the alley, they apparently feel safer to come out now.
3: Yeah, uh, that's really interesting, and I'd love to get them on video. Uh, If I do,
0: I'll send it Yeah, that sounds good. Mike, I appreciate it. Mike in Glendora talking about the uh, pack of wild boar. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. What types of wildlife are you seeing more of in your community? We'll continue in just one minute. In case you missed our first hour, we reported that a retired Dodger broadcaster, Vin Scully, hospitalized after falling Tuesday at uh, his home. He's 92 years old and was taken to the hospital for observation where he spent Tuesday night and last night. He's expected to be released soon. Uh, Scully said, I won't be doing any more headfirst sliding. I never liked it. That's uh, posted on the Dodgers Twitter account. We wish uh, Vin and his family and the whole Dodger family All the best for his recovery and good to hear that he is expected to be released soon. We're talking about uh, wildlife that you've been seeing around your neighborhood. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Patricia Altadena says, I saw an Eagle uh, biggest I've ever seen in my life perched on a tree near my house. Uh, yeah. Um, not surprising that you would see that Hawks, of course, uh, eagles, falcons, all kinds of uh, birds of prey, 866 893 uh Akiko, in uh, the Mid-Wilshire District, what have you been seeing in your neighborhood?
9: Well, it's not so much what I've been seeing, Larry. I got a video from a very good friend of mine who lives in Altadena on Saturday. She'd been hearing strange noises. She chalked it up to just, you know, nothing, a house settling noise. She heard something and she went out to check on Saturday morning and she took a video of a giant brown bear with two cubs that have taken up residence underneath (laughs) her front. Oh, no.
0: So is she just letting them uh, hang out there?
9: Well, at the moment, yeah, she called wildlife services, I guess, and uh, animal control. And everybody says, oh, we don't deal with bears. <laughs> you
7: need
0: to adult- call They're not uncommon, actually, in Altadena, any of those foothill communities. But I hadn't heard about someone living under uh, uh, someone's house uh, before, uh, a bear under there. Uh, Akiko, thanks so much. 866 893 KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Michael, in Hollywood, what have you seen recently? Well,
8: Larry, it's not uh, rare to see a raccoon in Hollywood, but uh, a few weeks ago I saw an albino raccoon.
0: An albino? I've never seen... We have a lot of raccoons in my neighborhood. I've never seen an albino one. Neve Quinn, how how rare are those?
9: Those are pretty rare. There are instances of all sorts of albino wildlife all over the world, um, Larry, but they're certainly kind of the... Um, Not the norm for sure. So it's very, pretty lucky to see an albino, um, an albino anything actually.
0: All right. Uh, Thanks so much, Michael. Appreciate your reporting about that. Uh, Let's see, Joe in Highland Park. You're with us on Air Talk.
6: Hey. um, So I have seen, like a week ago, I saw like one blue heron uh, along the Rio Seco. And uh, yesterday, I saw three of them. And I feel I've seen them by the LA River, but Now I'm seeing them, like, up here in Highland Park. It's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, I've noticed them in the Arroyo, too, Joe. I saw uh, one heron uh, fly right overhead. Also, there have been flocks of geese that I've seen flying over the area here near our studios in Pasadena, which, again, you know, there are plenty of geese throughout Southern California, but I have not seen them before in this area. 866-893-KPECC. Thanks very much. Olivia, joining us us from Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks so much. Go right ahead, Olivia.
9: Hi. Yeah, I'm a graduate researcher at the University of Washington, and my team and I just launched a community science project through eBird, which is an online, freely accessible citizen science app to document some of these great wildlife sightings that people are seeing and really test some of these hypotheses we have about how human activity changing during COVID-19 might be affecting local bird populations. So I'd encourage all these people who are submitting great stories to you guys about um, changes in birds to actually start collecting data on eBird so that we have data that we can analyze and really um, try to get to the heart of what's going on here.
0: That's great, Olivia. eBird, and thanks so much, and we appreciate your talking about the project you're doing at UW up in Seattle. Thanks very much. 866-893- KPCC. Mary, in Malibu which has plenty of wildlife uh, but although I understand you live in Pacific Palisades so what have you seen?
9: That's right I yesterday I saw a baby fawn and its mother uh, across the street right in front of me in my car and the mom ran off the fawn uh, it, you know, didn't know what to do it couldn't get up it, it jump over the fence that she jumped over so I got out and um, the resident there said that the fawn had been born uh, next to its pool and that the mom drops it off every day, leaves it there all day, like daycare, and then comes back at night and picks it up. And um, that they've watched the fawn from the day it was born until yesterday,
3: wow. about
9: a week old. And it was just... You know, it was very chill just walking across the super residential street in the
0: Palisades. Mary, that's wonderful. And uh, so great to have these deer sightings in in some of the foothill areas, um, uh, like, you know, Pacific Palisades there, where they come down out of the Santa Monica Mountains. And people really get to know their deer family and become kind of attached to them. When I was growing up in the Hollywood Hills, we would have our regular deer family that would go across a path in our... Our, our backyard every night and uh, something that I looked forward to when I was home at that time. 866-893-KPCC. SEMA in Palm Desert says, there have been herds of desert bighorns coming down into my neighborhood. The most I've counted in a group has been 17. Wow, because you, you used to really have to look hard to see them up there uh, on the Rocky Mountainsides sides in that area. But they're coming down, Neve Quinn. What are some of the reasons why the bighorn sheep might be coming down into residential communities now? Well, it could
9: be all just to do simply with traffic, Um, or it could, once again, Larry, just be that they always did come in, and just nobody ever had the time to notice (laughs) this. Do you think someone would notice a flock of? 70 big horns <laughs> they're pretty uh, hard to miss so it could just be traffic you know there's so the traffic has decreased considerably um you know there's a certainly way way less traffic on the freeways you know uh, you know our local traffic might not have changed as much but um, at least on the freeways. And so there's opportunities um, to cross. um, And, you know, the noise of the freeway, it's not just the the physical cars on the freeway, it's sometimes just the noise on the freeway that can keep wildlife away.
0: That makes sense. Joel in Rialto says, I was at the bank yesterday and I saw a red-tailed hawk land in the middle of the parking lot. And grabbed a rat that was just running around. That's Wild Kingdom in Southern California. Neve Quinn of UC's Cooperative Extension Human Wildlife Interactions Advisor, thank you for joining us again. I sure look forward to the next time we have a chance to talk. You can share your wildlife encounters and what's changed in your neighborhood on the Air Talk page kpcc.org. Stay tuned. Governor Gavin Newsom's uh, daily new news conference is coming right up. I'm back with you tomorrow morning at 10 for the next Air Talk.